<clears throat> Good. We're going to go ahead and begin, and we are in chapter 29, <clears throat> chapter 29 of the Confession, and we're starting on baptism. Today we'll do the first two paragraphs, and then next time we'll do three and four, and then we'll also talk about uh, a little bit about infant sprinkling, okay? In, the, in next week. So we'll add that to the end of that because that might be an issue that comes up in our uh, conversations with people through the years. Okay, so let's pray and then we'll begin our Bible study. Father, we thank you for our time to be together today. And Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we do pray that you would teach us uh, today concerning uh, these ordinances, Lord, both of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Lord, why it is that we adhere to these ordinances, Lord, what they mean, or how we are to understand them. Lord, as we look at baptism today, Lord, what we desire and pray more than anything is that this spiritual reality would be true of us. Lord, that we truly would have been baptized into Christ Jesus, knowing that it is only when we participate in his death and resurrection that we can have the forgiveness of sins. So, Lord, we pray that this would be true of us spiritually and invisibly, and that, Lord, the symbol would then be of meaning and of use to us. So, Lord, help us as we think about these things. Lord, may we have the mind of Christ, and it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so we are on chapter 29, and this chapter and the next, chapter 30, deal with the two ordinances that we keep uh, in terms of after the resurrection of Christ, right? So before the resurrection of Christ, we said this last time, before the resurrection of Christ, the church, right, because there is, that, that's something that we need to get in our thinking as well. Oftentimes we think of the church as New Testament only and that the church didn't exist in the Old Testament, but we shouldn't think that way. The true church has always existed from Adam until the end of the world. The church before the resurrection of Christ uh, had many various rituals that it kept anticipating the coming person and work of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And these rituals or ordinances, symbols, whatever you want to call them, were in one way or another representing the person and work of Christ. After the resurrection of Christ, we have two ordinances given to us that the church is to keep throughout the time uh, until the return of Christ that are teaching by way of symbol uh, spiritual realities concerning salvation, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And these two are baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are the ordinances that we keep, and it's important that we understand them properly, biblically, and that we practice them properly the biblical way. So we need to practice what the Bible teaches, and then we need to understand it so that we have faith in what it means. And in both of them, there are many uh, errors and uh, heresies, false teachings concerning both baptism and concerning the Lord's Supper, right? Whether it be superstition, whether it be uh, improper uh, giving it to a candidate that is, uh, should, it should not be given to, whether it's the mode in which it is being applied or what, what's being done. In both of them, there's a lot of confusion and chaos in the churches, uh, and so we don't want that to be the case with us. We want to understand what does the Bible teach concerning baptism and the Lord's Supper. So we'll begin with baptism, and the confession is, I think, sufficiently clear on these. And we'll notice specifically when we get to the Lord's Supper, uh, although both of these, they are addressing not only what they believe, right, what the Bible teaches, but also they are addressing uh, errors and falsehoods that existed in the churches during their time, and these errors still exist in our time as well. So they're still applicable today. And this is consistent with what Titus chapter 1 says, that we have to be able to teach sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it, that it is the duty of the minister to do both. And in terms of the confession, it is beneficial that they not only teach us what the Bible says concerning these things, but that they're also addressing the errors that they see in the churches during their own time, and we should do that as well. Whenever there is an error, we should address it. Now, I say that because many times you'll hear pastors and others, Christians, 
say, well, we should, we should only be positive and we should just talk about what we believe and not talk about what other people believe. <laughs> but who can do that, right? You can't live in reality in the real world and do those things, right? We have to talk about what the Bible says and we have to talk about it in relationship to what is being taught and believed in the churches. Not only our church, but in other churches as well, because we're going to have contact, interaction with these people, and we need to know what the Bible says, and we need to know what they believe so that we can refute it and tell them, no, this is not right. This is what you ought to hold to for their good, right? For their benefit. So we have to do that. The reason people present this uh, model of thinking or this uh, this paradigm of thinking and ministry of just be positive, just focus on what we believe and not talk about other people is because they don't want to ever have to deal with any conflict or controversy, right? Well, of course, you're not going to be, uh, there's not going to be any conflict. There's not going to be, uh, anyone's not going to be rubbed the wrong way if you're never talking about truth in relationship to error. You have to talk about truth in relationship to error. So we need to know what does baptism teach? And then what is being taught in the churches today, and is it consistent with the scriptures? And where it's not, we need to reject it, okay? And then when we talk to people, and we should be willing to help them as well. Okay, chapter 29, paragraph 1. Baptism is an ordinance in, of the New Testament, ordained by Jesus Christ. To those baptized, it is a sign of their fellowship with him in his death and resurrection, of their being grafted into him, of remission of sins, and of submitting themselves to God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. Here it says baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament, right? So in terms of this ordinance being practiced commonly, right, universally in the churches among the people of God, this came about during the New Testament time, beginning with John the Baptist and then continuing in the ministry of Christ and then in the ministry of the apostles by the command of Christ, right? Though there are examples of washing rituals, right, in the Old Testament, and there are uh, specific examples like the case of Naaman the Syrian where he was commanded to go and dip himself seven times in the, in the Jordan River and he had to do that according to the commandment of the prophet. So there are examples of that taking place, but in terms of an ordinance that is to be practiced commonly in the churches uh, perpetually until the coming of Christ, it began during the ministry of John the Baptist, and then also in the ministry of Christ, and then in the apostles, and then it continues in the churches today. Right? So it is an ordinance of the New Testament, right? meaning after the coming of Christ, right, though it did begin before his death and resurrection in the ministry of John and Jesus Christ, it wasn't being practiced in the way it is today during the Old Testament time, right? During the time from uh, Adam until Abraham or from Abraham until Moses or from Moses until the coming of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. But it was instituted during the New Testament time and it was ordained by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ being Lord of the church. Now we might say, well, John the Baptist was doing it before Jesus came. And certainly in terms of chronology, uh, chronology yes, John the Baptist, his ministry was before the public ministry of Christ. But John was a prophet, and John was doing what he did by the spirit of prophecy. And who is the spirit of prophecy? But the spirit of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what John was doing, he was not doing on his own authority, but was doing it by the authority of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. The spirit of Christ within him was directing him in what he did. So he was practicing it, but he was doing so by the authority of God in all authority of Jesus Christ, right? That has been given to him. So it is ordained by Christ. Those, to those baptized, it is a sign of their fellowship with him in his death and resurrection and of being grafted into him of remissions of sins and submitting themselves to God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. Here, baptism is a sign, right? They say a sign, meaning it is symbolic. It represents something that is invisible and spiritual. So what takes place visibly, physically, outwardly is a sign or a symbol of an invisible spiritual reality, right? That's the key to an ordinance, to a symbol. The spiritual, the spiritual reality must be true 
And if the spiritual reality is not true, then the physical is of no benefit or profit at all. Right? Such was, and this is the case, universally of all signs and symbols. Whether that be circumcision, and Ishmael was circumcised, Esau was circumcised, many Jews from Abraham until Christ were circumcised physically, but they were not circumcised spiritually. Right? So did their physical circumcision do them any good? No, of course not. And so it is also with baptism. Many people have been through the symbol or ritual of baptism, but they have no part or no share in the spiritual reality. So does that physical element do them any good? Is it any benefit and value to them? No, not at all. Actually, it's detrimental to them. It's going to bring greater condemnation on them because they're playing loose and fast with the things of God and not understanding these things correctly. So it must be a sign. And for it to be a sign, then there must be something that it symbolizes. And for it to be a benefit to the person, he has to understand what it symbolizes. And if he doesn't, then it is of no value at all. And this is one of the reasons why infant sprinkling is not valuable. Because when the infant is sprinkled, does the infant have any consciousness of what is going on? Does he have any remembrance of what is going on? No, of course not. Now, someone might say, well, yes, but that was also true in circumcision. Well, he may not have consciousness of what's happening when it happens, although I'm sure he felt the pain of it. But he does have remembrance of it from the day for the rest of his life because the mark is on his body uh, for the rest of his life. So he does see that by way of reminder, and it is a benefit and value to him in that way, but not in the case of baptism, right? The infant being sprinkled has no consciousness of what is taking place. And they'll say, well, it's for the benefit of the parent, right? But it's the person who is receiving the ordinance that ought to be benefiting from it. And in that way, the infant is not benefiting at all. Also, it's not being administered correctly. We'll get to that next time. Okay, so it's a sign of their fellowship with him in his death and resurrection. Right? This is what baptism symbolizes. Our fellowship with Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. Baptism represents that because we are buried with Christ right? In symbolically, when we go under the water, it is a picture of death, that we've died with Christ, right? Because if you go underwater, what happens to you if you're standing there long enough? You die, right? You die. You're buried in the waters with Christ, and then you come back up out of the waters, signifying newness of life, that you have new life. So it is a sign of our fellowship, of our participation in his death and resurrection, which is the basis for salvation, right? For the forgiveness of sins and of our being grafted into him, right? What is happening to us symbolically and spiritually is what happened to Christ. Didn't Jesus die on the cross? Yes. And wasn't he raised again? Yes. So if we have faith in Christ, we are grafted into Christ so that we participate in his death and in his resurrection, and that's the basis of our forgiveness of sins. So that when Christ died, who died with him? We died, the, the participant, the believer. He died with Christ. And when Christ rose from the grave, who rose with him? We did, right? That has already happened spiritually. And then it will happen physically in the second coming, right? That we will die and then we will rise with him. Okay, Romans 6. Romans 6 is a very important passage for these things because he is talking about the spiritual reality in Romans 6 and all the implications of it. Romans 6 verse 1. Romans 6 1 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who die to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly shall we also be in the likeness of his resurrection. 
Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So there, if we've been baptized into Christ Jesus, we're baptized into his death. And the reason Jesus died was to put to death the body of sin. So if we've died with him, how can we let sin have mastery over us? How can we uh, sin so that grace may increase? He says, no way. No way could that be the case. A person who's thinking that way shows they have no understanding of salvation. They don't understand the gospel. They don't understand the purpose of it. And they've not been grafted into Christ. Because if we're grafted into him, the body of sin is dead, right? We've died to sin and we've been raised to walk in new life, right? The life of Christ, when he came out of the grave, is a different life than the life before. Not that Jesus sinned before and now he is righteous, but in terms of his body. He had a corruptible body, a body that was susceptible to death before his death, but he was raised with an immortal, a perfect, a spiritual, a resurrected body. It is a better body that he comes forth from the grave with. And so in terms of our conversion, when we are converted and we die with Christ spiritually, then the life that we live after our conversion, after we've been baptized into Christ, should be a different life than the life we lived before. Right? If there's no change in a person before their conversion and after their conversion, then there's no conversion. Right? They have not, what have they been converted to if there's no change in the way that they live? So we are raised to live a new life. And this is because we've been united with a death like his, We've been united in a resurrection like his, and we are walking a new life, right? And all of this is called baptism, right? We've been immersed into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptized, taking part in those things. So it is a fellowship of death and resurrection and that we've been grafted into Christ. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2, verse 8. Colossians 2, 8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions having canceled out their certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made public display to them, having triumphed over them through him. There, here in this passage, when he's talking about circumcision, he's talking about baptism. He doesn't mean this literally and physically. He's talking about the spiritual realities. Isn't that the case? What is the circumcision he's talking about? The spiritual, right? Made without hands, meaning made without human hands. So whose hands made this circumcision? The hands of God, right? The Spirit of God, right? That's what we're talking about. It's the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. The wicked, evil flesh that dwells within man, that's what's being circumcised. That's what's being removed through the death of Christ, and then buried with him in baptism. Is he talking here about literal, physical water baptism? 
He's talking about the spiritual reality. What the water baptism symbolizes is being buried with Christ and being raised up with Him through faith in the working of God. So he's talking about the spiritual realities. This is what baptism symbolizes. Being, dying with Christ and being raised with Him in newness of life. Okay, Galatians 3. Galatians 3, verse 28. I mean... Twenty, let's see, 23. Let's start at 23. 23 says, But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have Clothe yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs, according to the promise. So there in verse 27, and here we're talking about faith in Christ, right? Faith in Christ. We become sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ, not by works, not by works, not, neither the work of circumcision nor the work of baptism. Right? Neither one of those make us sons of God. It's only through faith in Christ. And when a person has faith in Christ, you're baptized into Christ and you've clothed yourself with Christ. Here, the baptism he's speaking of is the spiritual. It's the spiritual reality. To be clothed with Christ. He can't mean that literally. Because we don't literally wear Christ as our clothes. But we do so spiritually. We're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And this is our baptism. Our baptism into Christ. Which comes through faith in Him. Okay, another passage. This one's not listed, but it should be. 1 Peter chapter 3. This is a bonus, bonus passage. 1 Peter 3. Verse 18, and this is a, a good passage to remember if you're ever talking to someone who argues that baptism, water baptism is necessary for salvation or for justification. This would be similar to the Galatian heresy or the heresy of Acts 14 and 15 where the Judaizers are saying that unless you're circumcised, you can't be justified. You can't have the forgiveness of sins. Circumcision, the actual physical act of circumcision is necessary for the forgiveness of sins. Or people will say today, this would be the Church of Christ that believes this, that water baptism is necessary for the forgiveness of sins. So if you believe in Christ, but you've not been water baptized, you're still not saved until you are baptized with water. So if you believe and you're on your way to get baptized and you have a car wreck and die, then you're not going to go to heaven. You're going to go to hell. Even though you believed because you have not been baptized with water and in at least big ones. I don't know about small ones. Probably not. But in big Church of Christ or Christian churches, they actually have a staff person on call 24 hours a day. So that if you become a believer in midnight, you can go to the church and be baptized to seal the deal, okay? Seal the deal. It's no good, no good. Okay, 1 Peter chapter 3. This is a passage that they'll use to support this, but we'll see it actually doesn't support it at all. It actually undermines it because he's not talking about water baptism. 1 Peter 3, 18 says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who, were, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Okay, corresponding to what? What are we talking about? 
we're talking about Noah and the eight persons that were saved through the flood, right? Because didn't Noah and the eight pass through the waters of God's judgment? Yes, that's how they were saved. They were saved through the waters of judgment because they were in the place of safety, in the ark. And in a sense, they were baptized in the flood in that way. But then they came out of the flood. They were raised out of that and they had life after the flood where everyone else died. In the flood, the water was the judgment of God upon them, okay? Which is also symbolized in our water baptism, that we're dying with Christ, water symbolizing the death, the death, the judgment we deserve because of sin, but then we're raised up out of that. So corresponding to that, to Noah and the eight that were saved through the flood, baptism now saves you. Okay, this is where the Church of Christ was like, see, look, there, it says it. Baptism saves you. You have to be baptized in order to be saved. But what is he talking about here? Notice what he says. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what is the baptism that he's talking about here? Not, he says, the removal of dirt from the flesh. I'm not talking about water baptism. I'm not talking about water cleansing your outward body. That's not what saves you, right? What saves you? An appeal to God for a good conscience. And how do we have a good conscience before God? Because we have the forgiveness of sins. Because our sins have been washed with the blood of Christ, and there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And we have a clean conscience before God because we know All of our sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven in Jesus Christ. And also, because of what Christ has done, now we're desiring to live a godly life. And when we live a godly life, does our conscience condemn us? No, we have a clean conscience before God. So here, he's not talking about water baptism. He's talking about spiritual baptism, the clean conscience before God, the washing of our conscience with the blood of Christ. That's what we need. And this is the Christ who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. The spiritual reality, okay? Okay, so this then goes with the first part, that we have been grafted into him, into his death, and into his resurrection. Also, they say, it is a sign of the remission of sins, Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. And verse 4. It says... John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Right? Baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So there, the baptism that John was preaching and teaching was repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Right? The remission of sins. The necessity of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Right, and baptism symbolizes this. That, again, the old man is dead and the new man has come up in his place. So if the old man was a thief and the thief died, then what has been raised in its place? An honest man. An honest man uh, who works hard so that he has something to share with others. If he was an adulterer in his previous life and he's died, he's been baptized into Christ and been raised, what kind of a life is he going to live now? Not a life of the adulterer, but he's going to live a pure life, a righteous life, a holy life, a faithful life to the wife of his youth. He's not going to do those things anymore. So baptism represents, necessitates repentance because the old man is dying and the new man is rising in his place. And that's why John, in performing baptism and in teaching about baptism, was preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And we have to as well, right? We have to as well. This isn't in there as well, but we'll read it. Luke, Luke chapter 24. Luke 
Luke 24, and verse 44. Luke 24, 44. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, and all things which were written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. There again, Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's what John was preaching. That's what Jesus was preaching. And then that's what he's commanding his apostles to preach. Baptism or repentance for the forgiveness of sins symbolized in baptism. Right? In baptism. That's what needs to be taught. Acts 22. Now again, the problem today is nobody is teaching. No one's teaching repentance. Right? It's a dirty word today in the church. And the reason they don't teach repentance is because they're not preaching against sin. They're not preaching judgment. It's all love of God. Just love, 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 faith, faith, faith. But without sin and without repentance. It's not the true gospel. Acts 22, verse 16. Acts twenty-two sixteen says, Now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized. And wash away your sins, calling on his name. Here, this is the apostle recounting his conversion and what Ananias told him. Why do you delay? Right, seeing that you have these proofs from God, you know what you need to do, right? It's been made clear to you what you need to do. Why are you delaying? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins. Not meaning that the physical baptism, the water baptism, would wash away his sins. But his baptism would be a sign and symbol of what God had done, right? Calling on his name. That's what washes our sins away, is calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We call upon his name, and our sins are washed away, and then that is manifested or symbolized in the water baptism. What has happened invisibly and spiritually. And the two always go together, right? The two go together. If we have the spiritual reality then we'll want to have the physical as well, right? We won't say, well, it doesn't matter. It's unimportant. It's just a symbol. Well, why would we, would we not want to obey Christ? Of course we want to obey him. So we'll want to do it in the right way. Okay, and then also it is a sign of submitting themselves to God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. And that we've already read, but we'll just read this verse, Romans 6, 4, just as... A reminder says, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So then baptism is symbolizing all of these realities. And we need to understand those things before we are baptized or before we uh, administer the ritual or the ordinance to a person as well. They need to understand what they're doing, and have some comprehension of it and adherence to it. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone that gets baptized is going to be honest and a truthful, truthful person. But that wasn't even the case with Jesus Christ. Because wasn't Judas Iscariot baptized with the rest of them? Well, we know he was a fraud from the whole time. And there were others who were frauds as well, who didn't understand what they were doing. So all we can do is the best that we can do, right? Examine people, take it seriously, teach them what it means, Right, But ultimately, it's on the person to be sincere and honest in what they're saying and what they are doing, and we can just do the best that we can. Okay, chapter 29, paragraph 2. Who are the candidates for baptism? Those who personally profess repentance toward God and faith in and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ are the only proper subjects of this ordinance. So here, those who personally profess repentance towards God. I can't profess it for you. The father can't profess it for the children, right? No one can do it for another person. But only the individual being baptized needs to believe in the gospel. Repent towards God, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and obey Christ, right? Be saying and 
evidencing that he wants to obey Christ and follow him and be faithful to him. Only these are the proper subjects of baptism. Only they should be baptized. So this would preclude then infants or little children. Also, it would preclude those who are frivolous, who are making spurious decisions right in the spur of the moment, such as what happens at youth camps or VBSs like False Creek, where they get the kids down there, they deprive them of sleep, they hype them up with energy drinks, <clears throat> they play some sappy music, they get some uh, buffoon up there who will tell a couple of tear-jerking stories, and then the next thing you know, what's happening? The whole world's converting to Christ. And then they go home, and the next uh, day they get back to church on Sunday, they come home on Saturday, they go to church Sunday, and they'll baptize them right, right there on the spot. This shouldn't be happening, right? This is no good. And we've all, at least if you grew up in a Baptist church, you've witnessed it. Probably if you grew up in a Pentecostal church or whatever other tradition, you've seen these types of things as well. No seriousness in what is taking place. So we shouldn't be like that at all. We need to take these things very seriously. And only those who are repenting towards God, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, obedience to Christ, who understand the gospel, who are evidencing that they believe the gospel, right? Again, we're not saying we need to test them for 50 years to make sure before we baptize them. But there needs to be some examination of the person, explanation to the person. And then if they are passing those tests, then we would administer it to them. And then if they were lying to us and deceiving us, then that's on them. And God will hold them accountable. All we can do is explain it and do it to the best of our ability. So these are the ones who are the proper candidates. And this is the example we have in the Bible, right? That it is believers who are being baptized, right? That are being baptized. You don't have any examples in the book of Acts or the New Testament of infants being sprinkled or infants being baptized, right? In that way, it's not happening. Now they'll say the Philippian jailer. This is the grand example because it says his whole household was baptized, but that assumes that there were infants in the household. But is it tr universally true that every household has infants in it? Does my household have infants? No. Now, Christian's household has infants, but mine doesn't, right? Marianne's doesn't. The Stones don't have infants in their household. The Morrises don't, right? The Smiths do back there. The Cokers do not. So in our own congregation here, Manels, I see you over there. So it's a mixture. Some do and some don't. It depends. So it assumes that the Philippian had to have infants in his household and that those infants were sprinkled. But why is that assumption true? Why should we base an entire practice on an assumption that there's no biblical proof of? When all of the examples we have in the book of Acts and before are adults and believers, people who are believing, at least professing, faith in Christ. Okay, let's look at these examples Mark 16, 16. Now, there is some debate as to whether or not this portion of Mark, in some of the Greek manuscripts, this portion of Mark is not found. So there is some debate there. But what is being said here is not a contradiction to any other part of Scripture. Mark 16, 16 says, He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. So there, he who has believed and has been baptized. So in this case, believing comes first, and then what comes after believing? Baptism, right? Believe, then they are baptized. Okay, Acts. Acts chapter 8. Acts 8.36 says, And as they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all of your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So there, 
in this one, he sees the water and he says, what prevents me from being baptized? Now, before this takes place, he's being taught the gospel, right? That's what takes place uh, earlier in the passage, right? Whenever Philip comes up to him and asks him, do you understand what you're reading? He's reading from the prophet Isaiah, and he says, how can I understand unless someone teaches me? And then Philip comes up into the chariot with him, and then Philip is teaching him. He's interpreting the Bible and explaining the gospel to him, right? And then it's only after he's been taught, explained, and again, and believes it, that then he is baptized, right? There's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Well, what would prevent a person from being baptized? If you don't believe it, right? If you're an unbeliever. But that Philip doesn't withhold it from him shows that he believed. He believed, right? And Philip understood that. And so Philip baptized him there. Also, he went down into the water as well. You'll see that in verse 39. He ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. There, he immersed him, right? That's what he did. That's why they went down into the water. This passage will come up more when we talk about the mode uh, next time. Immersion or sprinkling. Okay, chapter 2, verse 41. Chapter 241 says, So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. So which were the ones baptized? Those who received his word. Meaning they believed his word. They received it. They believed it, right? They didn't reject it. They believed in the word of the Lord. They believed the gospel. And then they were the ones who were baptized. Okay? Chapter 8 Acts chapter 8, and we'll pick up in verse 9. And here would be an example of a spurious or a false convert, but he still was baptized. They didn't withhold it from him. They went ahead and baptized him, but ultimately the blame lies with Simon because he was a deceiver and he was lying to them. Acts 8, verse 9. Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from the smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, They were baptized, men and women alike. So here you see both their repentance and their faith, right? They used to follow Simon the magician because he claimed to be someone great. And they said, oh, he must be a great man, which isn't this true commonly of people today? Everyone's claiming to be someone great and many people want to follow someone great. Sadly for you, this is not the case. There's no one great here, but that's okay. We don't need someone great. We just need the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We need the word of God. That's all that we need. But this is what is common in the world and sadly in the churches today. They want to be someone great and people want to follow someone great. This is why you have celebrity pastors. They're someone great and everyone wants to follow someone great, but we shouldn't desire to be like that. They used to follow him, but then they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Who is Philip preaching? Himself? Or is he preaching Christ? See, that's the difference. Philip is preaching Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. He's not preaching himself. He's not trying to make a name for himself. And they believe Philip. They believe him. They believe the gospel. And then after they believed, they were baptized, men and women alike. It didn't matter if you're a man or a woman. All that mattered is if you believed. They were baptized. Then verse 13, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. As he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. If we stop there, we might say, oh, look at this. Even Simon became a believer. And he was baptized. And he continued with Philip. 
But then verse 14. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now is this behavior in line with the gospel? Does this show the understanding of a man who is a believer? No. And that's how Peter takes it. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourself, so that nothing of what you said may come upon me. So there, Simon, he made a false profession, but they baptized him anyway. But then later, when it manifested that he had no part in these things, then Peter makes this pronouncement upon him of his wickedness and of his sin. And this is as we should do in the church as well. We administer baptism to worthy candidates. We do the best that we can. But if at a later date they manifest through sin that they're not true believers, then we pronounce the curse of God upon them, as Peter did. And then they would be expelled from expulsion from the church if they won't repent. Right? So that's the way that it should be properly administered there. Okay, then chapter 18. Chapter 18 and verse 8. It says, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all of his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. So there, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, he believed in the Lord with his household. Meaning his household also believed in the Lord. So they were all being taught the gospel and they all were believing the gospel, which assumes that they were of age enough to understand the gospel. Right? That they're not one or two years old and have no idea what you're talking about. They were able to understand and comprehend the gospel, and they believed the gospel for salvation. Many other Corinthians heard the gospel and believed as well, and then they were baptized. That's the sequence of events. They heard, they believed, and then they were baptized. And that's the way it should be administered today as well. We preach the gospel, and then when someone believes the gospel, then they are baptized. Not before, right? Not before, and not when they are infants or in some state where they cannot understand. So those who personally profess, they are the candidates for baptism. Uh, and those are the ones that it should be administered to. Not to infants and not for the dead. You know, there are some traditions that do that. Uh, they'll baptize people on behalf of the dead. Mormons do this with all the other crazy things that they do, but they will baptize for dead people. As if a living person can be baptized for a dead person and then get them into heaven or whatever else they believe in. So all of this is nonsense, and it's not consistent with the teaching of the Bible. Okay, well, we'll stop there for today, and then we will pick up there uh, next week uh, with the way it should be administered uh, in terms of the outward form of immersion, uh, so we'll deal with that next time. But we'll pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for our time together today, and Lord, we do thank you for your word, and Lord, how it teaches us concerning this ordinance of baptism, that Lord, it, it proclaims to us this spiritual reality that we have been baptized into Christ Jesus, Lord, into his death and resurrection, and that that is the basis for the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, may we never 
place our hope and confidence in anything other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. Lord, even these rituals, Lord, that have been instituted by you, Lord, they are of no profit in overcoming the flesh. Lord, only Christ can do that. Only he, Lord, can take all of our sins away. So may we not trust in anything but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And Lord, when we practice baptism or when we practice the Lord's Supper, Lord, may we understand it correctly. Lord, seeing it as a symbol, Lord, of salvation, Lord, of what takes place spiritually. And we pray that, Lord, the spiritual reality would be true. And then as a result, the physical would be a benefit and a blessing to us and to many others as well, as we have in it a picture of the death and resurrection of Christ. Lord, we pray that you would give us safety as we travel home today. Lord, that you would bless us throughout this week. Lord, help us to walk in newness of life. Lord, we have died to sin and we are to live to righteousness. And Lord, we pray that that would be true of us as we live throughout this week. Father, as well, we thank you for the good news from Chris and Lisa. Lord, that they have indeed brought the new daughter into the world. Lord, we thank you for the life that you've given to her. And Lord, we pray for her to be a healthy baby girl. Lord, that Lisa and Eleanor would be able to go home quickly and that, Lord, there would be no problems and everything would go smoothly for them. Lord, as well, we pray for their family that you continue to bless them. Lord, we pray for their children that the faith that is in the parents, Lord, that it would be passed down to the children as well and that they would take seriously, Lord, the responsibility to train their children in the fear of the Lord. So, Father, we pray for both Clara and Eleanor, Lord, that they would Lord, in due time, come to know and understand the gospel, that they would believe the gospel for their salvation, and that, Lord, they would be grafted into Christ Jesus, and that they would have the forgiveness of sins. So, Lord, bless this family, and, Lord, we, again, thank you for uh, this new addition, and, Lord, we pray for your blessing on them. Lord, again, be with us as we go from here today. May we continue worshiping you, Lord, throughout this Lord's Day, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.